Uh, tonight, as we dive into the scripture, uh, we'll be exploring what is perhaps one of the most well-loved and enlightening, truly enlightening passages in all of scripture. Uh, that being John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 1 through 13. So I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, again, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, is what we'll be tonight. Now, this passage itself is brimming with just gospel truths about the person and work of Jesus, who is himself, of course, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh for our sake. And so, it's a fitting message, you know, as we've just celebrated Christmas, to be looking at this passage of John 1 this evening. But it's also, I think, fitting as well, because even this next Sunday, as many of us might know, is Epiphany. And so, we recognize on Epiphany the fact that Jesus, who took on flesh, has made himself not just known to the nation of Israel, the believers of the Old Covenant at that time frame, but even to us of non-Jewish descent. He has brought us into the family of God, and so we celebrate that at this time of the year even. And the Gospel of John makes that very clear to us. But this first chapter of the Gospel of John is important for us for an even further reaching, uh, in a further reaching way. How so, you might ask? Well, see, John 1 directly addresses this theme of disbelief. You know, of course, the gospel itself, many of you might know, is concerning belief, but this deals especially with our disbelief. See, you and I are immersed in this culture nowadays, even here in 2023 now, that is marked by jadedness, by cynicism, and if we're being honest, even distrust of those who are in authority over us. For instance, in recent years, we have all witnessed catastrophic world-altering events, such as international wars, even back in 2022. Economic tailspinning, again, more recently. And even heightened, and I dare say, sexual immorality that has just pervaded our culture. Never mind a widespread virus and a host of exploitative reactions to it that has impacted so many of us and our even livelihoods at that. And so the American church herself finds herself now to be under so much fire. And that's our context, of course, today. Men and women, as we well know, within the evangelical church even, who once claimed to be, quote-unquote, Christians, have begun to turn one by one, sadly, to false gospels. False gospels that are solely governed by the fake God of self, capital S, self. And sadly, again, these same people, so many of them are even dear friends and family whom you and I both love, have, in their own words, deconstructed their faith in recent times. And I'm sure I'm not alone at all in the slightest, having seen those that I once had deep and great respect for, theologians, Christian artists, and so many of the same, <clears throat> who have now been captivated by this alluring self-indulgence of spiritual darkness rather than the unfailing light of Christ, about which we are to read tonight. See, though this seems to be a strange phenomenon that the present-day church is now experiencing, this is hardly a new event in the course of human history, is it not? <clears throat> See, even as early as the first century A.D., in which John was writing, there were those who were, again, deconstructing their own faith. They deconstructed, or at least tried to deconstruct, the gospel of grace and sought to lead others astray in matters of doctrine and practice. 
again, such was the cultural context in which John the Apostle was inspired then by the Holy Spirit to write these precious and holy words before our eyes in John 1, 1 through 13. And so this passage, dear friends, is especially designed to address the suppression of God's truth in unrighteousness in the most mysterious way by imparting saving faith to us in the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this message of saving faith then is is doctrinal for sure. It's even rational as we'll talk about tonight, but it is so, so personal. And so in other words, it is holistically true, stands the test of time, it is good, and it is still beautiful as well. And it's beautiful for us, the hearers, today. So Church of Christ, would you please hear now the words, the holy word of God, even from John chapter 1, starting in verse 1 with me. This is the word of God, which says the following to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, with these precious words in mind, let's come to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that has been given to us in love and has proven itself to be true time and time again. God, we know that we can rest in the fact that you are unchanging. You are from age to age the same. And so we ask, O God, now that as you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glories of Christ, may this message go forth even tonight as your word is proclaimed, and that our belief would be strengthened in this hour. God, I ask that as the messenger, that I would simply get out of the way as your mouthpiece, and rather that your word would break through our mundanity and our uh, lack of affection for you wherever is needful in this time, and that it would stir up within our hearts a holy and a new affection even, if need be, for you and for your grace. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, as I shared a moment ago, we, again, live in an age of deconstruction. And don't worry, this won't be a, uh, a sad sermon all around. 
but each one of us as God's primary institutions, uh, each one rather of God's primary institutions in the world, those three major institutions, that being the church, the family, and even the government, have all been attacked within our own lifetimes, let alone even in recent years. Uh, the family unit, for instance, in even recent years, has been redefined as of late, at least tried to have been redefined. The civil authorities have proven to not have the best interests of the church and her worship in mind even, as we have tried to meet in turbulent times. And the church itself has suffered a general attitude toward her, an attitude that has ranged from everything from perceived obsolescence to even false accusations against her character and her position before God and even vitriolic hatred toward her own existence in this world. And so like righteous Lot living in the heart of Sodom, we must and we can rest assured in this fact that this attitude toward the church pains the heart of God who loved the church and gave himself for her. And as those who have been given the holy word of God itself to inform and to direct our lives and to train us in all unrighteous, in all righteousness, rather, we are, understandably so, those who best see the division and the discord before us. Our eyes have been enlightened by the way, the truth, and the life himself, namely Jesus. Because of God's gracious condescension to us in the birth of Christ, we are therefore now no longer those who, like the world, grew up around in this darkness that is so present, seeking out our own separate quest to satiate our sinful desires, whether they be in the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. But sadly, the reality is that the world still dwells in such vile and wicked darkness around us. And so how do we, who have been called into the mysterious light of Christ, hold fast to that faith that was once delivered to the saints, especially when our culture continues to unravel before our very eyes? When men stoop to the level of even beasts, like King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 4, when these things happen, we must return to the basics of our Christian faith that is afforded to us in the word of God the elementary principles of what it means to stand as a light in this darkened place. Well, John the Apostle himself provides us with answers to three implicit questions within our own text tonight. These questions are the following. First, who is Jesus? Second, why should we believe in Jesus? And thirdly, how can we take comfort in this saving Messiah? Surely, again, these are foundational questions that concern our faith, but they are vital, as elementary as they might be, for us to answer in order to reconstruct our faith in this season of the church's life. For the Christian faith itself has been and is currently being and will continue to be under fire even in the years to come. So we must stand ready and poised. And so we look here to 1 John verses 1 through 5, which begins to answer that first question for us. Who is Jesus? The beloved disciple of Jesus answers this question, again, who is Jesus, with incredible profundity. So let us simply hear again what he says here. He says this in verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning 
with God. Now, without a doubt, these words directly mirror the opening of Genesis 1, verse 1 even. I'm sure many of you noticed that this matches not just substance, but especially even word order and style. And in fact, in the Greek text, for instance, the sentence even reads in the exact same order as John 1, verse 1. See, in the Greek, the uh, text of John 1, verse 1 says simply here in this order, in the beginning, the word was, period. And in Genesis 1, the creation account tells us that in the beginning, God created in that same order. And so it's no accident then, excuse me, that uh, John is actually equating the word of God in John chapter 1 with the creator and sustainer of all things in Genesis chapter 1. For he had every reason to do so. Because the word, Jesus, is God. Now throughout the Old Testament, the concept of the word of God himself was widely understood by the believers of the Old Covenant, as being that same divine person of the Messiah who proceeded directly from the Lord God. For example, in the Jewish Targum, which is the Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, it repeatedly uses this same phrase, the word of the Lord, as a direct reference to the saving Messiah who was to come, the Redeemer and Savior of his people who is sent forth by God's own righteous hand. We see examples of this same biblical reference to the word of the Lord throughout the Old Testament in places like Psalm 100, verse 1, and Hosea 1, verse 7, and Genesis 31, verse 22, and Exodus 20, verse 19, all in which the word of God is seen as God not merely written, but God in essence the person of Jesus, again, proceeding from before the very presence of the Lord God in order to accomplish the work of redemption and saving faith for his people. Now, this notion of the word of God is also clearly expressed for us in the Proverbs, such as Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 30, concerning wisdom, wisdom personified even, as being present at the very beginning by the side of the Father, at the dawning of all creation. Friends, this person is none other than Jesus. Furthermore, this same capital W, Word of God, is used in the New Testament of Jesus Christ by several of the writers, including Peter, John again later on, Luke, Paul, and even the author of Hebrews. In these passages, the word of God is displayed as a warrior and as a conqueror, the kingly majesty who rides forth wherever the gospel is preached to dispel the darkened understanding of men with the glorious light of his grace. And so the word of God, or the logos, is not merely some platonic idea of reason or rationality, as so many have suggested over the years, Rather, this idea of the Logos, the Word of God, is of biblical origin. And so why does John begin his gospel account then concerning the life of Jesus with this concept of the Word? 
Well, the answer is simple, quite uh, really. Uh, it's because he's intentionally setting before our eyes Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God in order that by believing in him, ordinary people like you and myself might have life in his name. For the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a mighty tower whom we can run into and find true safety, shalom, wholeness, and peace. Now, historically speaking, scholars often agree that John was most likely directly confronting the errors of the Gnostics, the primary heretics of his own day. And two of these Gnostics uh, were very important for us uh, to understand. They are very important for us, rather, to understand. And these names of these men were Cherinthus and Ebion by name, along with their followers who were called the Ebionites, Uh, These men, the Gnostics, had great influence over the early church. Now, I realize that these are not household names per se, but to give a little bit of explanation, uh, Cherinthus, in particular, deceived many within the early church into believing that God did not actually create the physical world. And furthermore, that Jesus was merely a man who took on the persona of the Messiah and was anointed for only his earthly ministry, both from his baptism all the way to the time of his crucifixion. Likewise, Ebion and the Ebionites did not believe in the eternality of Jesus and saw him as being merely a prophet who is solely a man, not the Son of God who took on flesh, as we know from the scriptures. But as you can imagine, these heresies, of course, do not accord with the rest of the biblical witness concerning this word of God. And so it's surely the grace of God that moved John upon hearing these false gospels to write a fourth gospel account in addition to Matthew and Mark and Luke. This is why his record of Jesus takes into consideration the whole of redemptive history, beginning with creation all the way to the point of Jesus' resurrection and appearing to the disciples in all the splendor of his risenness and resurrection. And so Jesus is set before us here in the opening words of this gospel as the Logos, the eternal word, who is indeed the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And as John 1, verses 4 through 5 says in our own text tonight, it says this, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, friends, the names of Cherinthus and Ebion, these heretics back then in the time of John's life, have both come and gone. In fact, let's just be honest, who here has even heard of the names Cherinthus and Ebion before tonight? (laughs) I imagine not too many of us. Fittingly so, their message, which attacked the name of Jesus way back then in the first century, has proven to be buried along with their names over the last 2,000 years. Likewise, those who proclaim false gospels, even in our own day, will not stand the test of time. The so-called 
gospel of social justice that many of us are aware of will not stand. The pragmatism of 20th century Protestantism in which the church tried to set up their own version of the kingdom of God on earth has failed over the last 100 years. And postmodernism's God of self, which sacrifices the intellect and reason and reliance upon the scriptures and all faith and practice, is already failing before our eyes. But, friends, the unchanging message of the eternal Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us will succeed and will last. 1 John 2, verse 8 tells us that the darkness is passing away. And the true light, meaning Jesus, is already shining. And in our text here in the Gospel of John, verse 5, it says this ever so boldly to us, that the light shines in the darkness, meaning that it continues to shine even to this day. And get this, the darkness has not overcome it, nor can it. In fact, the darkness that you and I experience in this world, the sinfulness of sin, if you will, will never be able to overcome the light of life himself, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, Jesus is presented to us here in verses 1 through 5 in all of his sublime glory. But continuing on in verses 6 through 9, we now see John, the gospel writer, beginning to answer the second question for us. Why should we then believe in this Jesus? Okay, we understand the doctrine, but why? What is the reasoning? What is the rationality behind it? Church, the nature of truth, reason, if you will, rationality, the nature of truth, though, is that it is inherently good. See, the reason why Jesus is described for us later on in verse 14 as being uh, full of grace and truth, rather, verse 17, actually, uh, is not arbitrary. Rather, grace and truth go hand in hand. See, to live in the truth is to enjoy all of its benefits, but to live by lies is to live as in the dark, riddled with anxiety concerning what we don't know and crippling fear of what we do know and confusion in the in-between. But the Bible tells us that our God, as David was pointing out earlier, has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather of power, of love, and of a sound or literally redeemed mind. And by the appearing of Christ our Savior, he has made the light of his glorious grace to shine upon our own once darkened, alienated, and godless state of being. So we can praise God for that. So how does God then shine forth the spotlight of his truth onto our sin-sick, wearied human condition? Well, I think the writer of Hebrews answered this so well for us in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. He says this, that long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. And catch this, he has spoken to us by his Son, his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
And so, in essence, our God speaks. And that's why we can trust Him. God Himself is a revealing God, revealing His power and His might through creation, yes, but imparting His saving grace to us through the person and work of Jesus in particular. Now, God shows, of course, in biblical times, to show ahead of time uh, Jesus and to reveal him through the Old Testament prophets, the last of whom was not found in the Old Testament as we know it, but rather John the baptizer here in the Gospel of John. And so this is why John the baptizer was commissioned or sent to go before Jesus to prepare a way for his ministry so that Christ's ministry would have its full intended effect. John, we read of here in the Gospel accounts, came baptizing with water, calling on men and women to repent of their sins and to stand before God with purified consciences, consciences that are sprinkled clean in preparation for the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Jesus who would fulfill all righteousness by his active obedience of the law in our stead. John 1, 6-8 states this so clearly concerning this John the baptizer. He says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In other words, the reason that we can believe the testimony of John the baptizer is because he was sent by God, God who cannot lie. As a brief point of application, a person's trustworthiness is the basis of our trust in them. Jesus is indeed the true light, and he has proven himself to be worthy of our trust. But we're encouraged implicitly here to think even in matters of those we trust here around us. See, we must pay very close attention to the doctrine and the lifestyles even of those to whom we give the gift of our trust. According to 2 Corinthians 4, ministers of the gospel are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God and are of no intrinsic importance on their own. Rather, those who preach have the distinct and unique honor of holding out before you the precious and glorious gospel of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and nothing less. He is indeed the pearl of great price, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, the Lamb who was slain, the Holy Messiah, the merciful Redeemer of his blood-bought people, and the one who is rich beyond all splendor, but who for love's sake became as poor. This is the heavenly treasure the gospel, the very person of Jesus, the word of God in the flesh, whom we cherish even within such earthly jars of clay. And he is worthy of our trust. But not only that, he is also worthy of our faith. He is the one on whom we rest. Our implicit trust is, again, one of the most precious commodities that we can give other people around us. And so we must therefore be especially careful to whom we entrust it. Many members of the evangelical church across our nation have placed their trust for years now even in those who preach or entertain before them rather than putting their trust in the preached one himself. And I believe that has been a root of so many of the issues in our church today by and large in America. 
But the scriptures tell us quite clearly to not put our trust in mere men, but rather to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There are far too many voices out there currently, masquerading as Christian voices even, who are competing with the precious and holy voice of Jesus Christ. These false shepherds are wolves in sheep's clothing, either peddling false gospels or exploiting the real gospel for selfish gain. And the only way to see these false shepherds for who they are is to observe their life and their doctrine together. For instance, if I or any other guest preacher were to come in here and preach to you even the scriptures in all of their power, and yet we lived as those as though the precious word of Christ meant nothing to us, we would be the most ashamed people in this entire world. And you would have every right to seek out better people to listen to. But rather, if the word of Christ, rather the word of Christ should be put before you, and he should be exalted in your midst every single time we listen to the word opened, Christ should be exalted And both the life and doctrine should be paid close attention to of these men. Such was the ministry of John the Baptizer, though. We can trust his witness here in the gospel. We read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke the same testimony that John did not dare to claim any of the glory for preaching God's message. In Matthew 3, 11 through 12, for instance, he declared to the believing Israelites, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John the baptizer knew that the pronouncement of the coming king was not about him. He was simply the messenger. And he dared not try to steal a single ray of light from the glorious Christ. Friends, God is pleased to use such humble and selfless witnesses like John the baptizer and those who preach before you faithfully like Pastor David and many others. But have you considered that you yourselves are also made to bear witness to Christ in all of your own ways, also bearing witness to Jesus as these men do and did. In your working, are you quick to express gratitude to your maker for gifting you with the skills that are necessary for the labor that God has appointed to you? In your speaking, are you mindful of the souls of those with whom you are engaging? And how your words have the power to either strengthen or sabotage these people before you. In the midst of your thinking, are you aware of how your own inner dialogue and ruminating thoughts can either draw you toward or away from thinking God's thoughts after him? If we desire to be a people that bear witness to the true light, each and every one of us, this true light, which is certainly capable to give light to everyone, we must become those who exercise our faith by taking every thought and word captive to the obedience of Christ so that we think God's thoughts after him. Now, in his providence, we 
as believers today are those who, of course, come after John the Baptizer 2,000 years later. On this side of the cross, we have a fuller comprehension because of the word of Jesus' rescue mission. What John saw only through types and shadows, that which he testified to, we now have the privilege of seeing in the light. And if John, who couldn't even see fully, was able to bear witness about Christ, how much more can men and women like you and myself bear witness to this glorious Christ? The one whom we have tasted and seen as being good. Namely, through his atoning death and resurrection on our behalf. After all, we are among those of whom Isaiah prophesied thousands of years in advance. You and I are those people, according to Isaiah 9, who once walked in that darkness, which we've been talking about this whole time. But we are those now who have seen a great light. We are that spiritual nation that Christ has created and multiplied by his spirit and whose joy has been increased as the gospel pervades our thoughts and our words and our deeds in our midst. We are those who rejoice before God as with joy at the harvest for the yoke of our burden, the staff for our shoulder, and the rod of our former oppressor, sin itself by name, has been broken by our great God and Savior. And how did he accomplish this? Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 goes on to tell us as much. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts back then prophesied will do this. And friends, in our time, we see the zeal of the Lord of hosts has indeed done this through Christ. And so these sweet words of comfort assure us that the truth and the goodness of God are before us on full display in the person of Jesus. And this leads us to our third and our final question for this evening then. How can we then take comfort in this Jesus? How do we see Jesus as being not just true and good, but beautiful at this point? Well, John 1, 10 through 13 explains to us that our comfort is in the very will and nature of God himself. For our God is the one who has called us to be his beloved children. Not of anything that belongs to us or that is inherent to us or is derived from our personalities, as fun as they might be, or our own dispositions, but rather purely of and by his saving and merciful good pleasure. Do you know God's smile and his pleasure toward you in this place? See, John 1 verse 10 states that Jesus, the true light, was in the world and that the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. There's a sharp contrast going on here, isn't there? See, with these words, John hearkens back to the very first few verses again in the Gospel of John, but especially all the more to the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. 
Here we see in this historic account that all things were made through the word and eternal life is to be solely had in him, and yet the spiritual darkness of sin has alienated the mind of man from understanding and submitting to the things of God. In the day that our first parents ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they failed to uphold that legal declaration of life promised on the basis of their obedience to a holy God. And yet God foretold immediately, meeting them even in their sin, that from his incomprehensible heart of sheer grace, he would send forth the redeemer of his elect, whom he would raise up from the offspring of Eve to defeat that ancient foe and so put death to death by his own death upon the cross. As Galatians 4 verse 4 tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This too then is what John describes for us in this passage in the gospel. See, in verse 11, it showcases for us this most mysterious message ever given to men. It says this concerning Jesus, that he came to his own, those in his possession, quite literally, and yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, given the knowledge of Christ that you and I hold so dearly, you might be thinking as well, how can the world ever reject this good and gracious king? How could the world choose death and destruction over the light of life himself? And furthermore, how could so many of the people of Israel at that time in the first century not see Christ for who he was in the flesh? Well, friends, such is the nature of sin. It blinds us to the sovereign mercy of God, and it even enslaves us to our own unspeakable passions. But such also is the nature of God's divine election in Christ from before all time, that we who have faith in him now are not those who had deserved any better than the rest of the world, but rather we are those on whom God has been pleased to shine the light of Christ, to melt our icy cold hearts of stone, and to give to us new, warm, handmade, fashioned hearts of flesh, graced with heavenly desires now. See, but for the grace of God, we too were those who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And we would have continued to follow, of course, this course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God. Ephesians 2, 4 declares to us that God being rich in mercy because of the great love, pure and only love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our, in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who believe. 
praise God for his love that has been poured out over us. See, by his great love, he has given ruined sinners like us who simply now believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the right, the authority, the powerful privilege even of being called beloved children of God. So many of us have been born into the visible church, including myself, but true believers are those who have been born of God. And so, brother or sister in Christ, do you know yourself to be a son or daughter of this living God who gave his own son for you? A son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A son or daughter that has been born not from blood, not of the will of the flesh, not even from the will of man, but from God and God alone. Well, as we conclude, I want to leave you all with the fitting words of a remarkable Dutch medieval Christmas carol. And this old carol from hundreds of years ago is called, Come and Stand Amazed, You People. It's been recently rearranged by one of my favorite bands called Citizens, and so I'll read their version in the modernized English, if you will, before you all. But listen to these words carefully, coming right from this passage. Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. See how humankind received him. See him wrapped in swaddling bands, who as Lord of all creation rules the wind by his commands. See him lying in a manger without sign of reasoning. Word of God to flesh surrendered. He is wisdom's crown, our king. My friends, my prayer for us tonight is that we would hear this final verse and take heart in this specifically. The song continues, O Lord Jesus, God incarnate, who assumed this humble form, counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. Light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Let your meekness give me boldness. Let your burden set me free. O Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. May that be true of us this evening.